0: Hey, good morning. Thank you for pressing with us as we've gone through worship today. Now we're going to go to a period of worship through the hearing and obeying of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and open up to the book of Jude. Um, As I said a couple weeks ago, if you go to Revelation and then turn left, you will find it. It's one chapter long, and we're going to finish up. Um, We have two more Sundays through the book of Jude, Um, so go ahead and turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 23. Now, just by way of recap, when we started this series, we looked at the first few verses and really just said this book is about contending for the faith. The main thesis of the book of Jude is about contending for the faith. And so I can understand why some of you are a little bit perplexed. It seems like there's enough fighting in the Christian world. Why are we talking about more fighting and how we should fight? Well, the reality is we do have a faith that was delivered to the apostles once and for all. There is a body of truth that is worth fighting over. But I think the book of Jude is going to be helpful to us, particularly in this time, because it's going to tell us how we should be fighting. In any healthy relationship, whether it be a marriage or friendship or even brothers and sisters, conflict is inevitable. And As a matter of fact, conflict can even be healthy. But in our fighting, we have to learn how to fight fair. We have to learn that some words are off limits, some things you can't take back, and so we have to learn how to have healthy conflict. And the book of Jude is going to show us how we are to contend for the faith that doesn't produce more bitter people or more violence, but it produces what it says in verse 2, that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied. And so we see if we were to follow the Word of God in the book of Jews' instructions, we would actually see more mercy, peace, and love as a result of our contending. Now, that should stop you in your tracks right now because oftentimes that is not the result of our contending. Oftentimes it leads to hurt relationships. It leads to cutting people off or deleting them off of social media. But if we're going to follow God's command to fight for the faith, we must follow His commands on how we must fight for the faith, and the end result, if we follow the Word of God, it is actually more mercy, peace, and love. And the most—and one of the other things to remember is what Pastor Sean, Rashawn talked about last week, is the audience and aim of our contending. The aim of our contention isn't for those outside of these walls, isn't for the world, it's for us, it's for those who call themselves Christians and yet have found themselves straying from the truth. And so that is our focus today, is how do we hold our brothers and sisters accountable? How do we defend the faith for those who are in the faith? This isn't about apologetics for the unbeliever. This isn't about reasons to believe for the agnostic, for the atheist. This is about defending the faith for those who say that they already are in the faith. With those brothers who are struggling and wondering, and those sisters who are struggling and wondering, how do we defend the faith to them and at times even from them. And that's what we're going to be looking at today by way of review. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, but you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end time there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, would you use my, my mind and my mouth to accomplish more than I'm able to? Would you saturate this moment, God, with the power of your presence so that we can be comforted and challenged and transformed by your word? Would this not just be a, another Sunday, God, but would you use this to show us how we can be salt and light, how we can see mercy, peace, and love multiply as a result of our obedience to your word? In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray, and all of God's people said, amen and amen. Verses 17 and 18, um, all the way down to 19, gives us a little bit of a foundational review. It says, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. Jude here is going to tell us that we should be saddened by those leaving the faith, but we shouldn't be shocked by those leaving the faith. We should be saddened by those who are using the gospel for personal, political, and manipulative means, but we should not be shocked by those things. It is declared in the Word of God that these things will happen. What was predicted by the apostles is sure to come to pass, and we don't have to look very far to see that happening right within the walls of the church, how there seems to be so much confusion, how there seems to be so much even false teaching, not outside the walls, but right in the house of God. But verse 19 is going to be helpful for us because it says that these people, the ones living according to their ungodly desires, are creating divisions and are worldly, not having a spirit. Now, that's a word that's grown in popularity over these last several years, division. You can't go on social media or have a conversation about Christianity very long without that word coming up. Oh, that's just being divisive. Oh, that brother is causing division. Oh, we should not talk about that because that would be divisive. And it seems like something that we're all taught to avoid, but we don't really understand what it is. And yet it says in verse 19 that these people are causing division. Now, before we unpack who these people are and how they were all able to cause division, we have to talk about unity. How are then we united helps us understand what are the dangers of being divided. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. It says that talking about Jesus Verse 17, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We're going to come back to this idea of foundation and Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. But here, clearly, what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians, he's saying that it is the work of Jesus Christ that actually united us. We were once aliens and strangers, both to God and to each other, but Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross brought us together, united us as one family. And division is breaking that bond. So let me ask you this question. What is powerful enough to undo what Jesus did? Is it disagreements? Is it doing church differently, singing different songs, wearing different clothes on Sunday? I would submit to you that there's only one way to bring biblical division, that is to reject the source of unity, to reject Jesus himself. Verse 19, these people create divisions. How are they creating divisions? Because they are worldly, and the key here is not having the Spirit. Jude is saying that there are some... <laughs> wolves in the hen house. There are some goats among the sheep. There are some who call themselves believers but have actually rejected the gospel, rejected Jesus, don't have the Spirit, and they are able to cause divisions. You see, there are some things worth being divided about. What Jesus did, who Jesus is, and what our response to the work of the gospel is, those are things that clearly divide us from the world. We cannot agree to disagree on those things. The work of Jesus Christ is the foundation and cornerstone of the Christian faith, and yet there is plenty of room in the family for us to disagree yet not be divided. We can do different songs. We can dress differently on on Sundays. We can disagree on doctrine and theology to a degree. As long as it doesn't reject the work of Jesus Christ himself, we are not divided. We're just disagreeing. In order to be divided, you've got to reject Jesus. Now, there's some good news in that, isn't there? There's some good news by saying we actually have more in common than we think. If you trust in Jesus and I trust in Jesus, that makes us brothers, and that means we can look differently. We can do things differently. We can disagree, but we are still family. And yet, the moment you reject Jesus, no matter how much else we have in common, we are divided. And that is what Jude is laying the foundation for, not those out there again, but those inside the church. If you reject Jesus and live a lifestyle that rejects Jesus, that is what causes division. Everything else is just disagreement. Now, what are we to do when we see division? What are we to do when we see brothers and sisters straying from the faith, wandering away from the foundation of truth? we're going to see two different commands. Jude is going to give us a personal responsibility and a communal responsibility. In order to contend and defend the faith, he gives us a personal responsibility in charge and a communal responsibility in charge. Let's start with the personal as he does. Verse 20, but you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Verses 20 and 21 gives us this personal charge and responsibility. Let's break it down and understand. He gives us two commands in verse 20 to build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, depending on your faith tradition, this is oftentimes a verse used to talk about praying or speaking in tongues. And I don't think that's what Jude has in view here, because this idea of building up yourselves in your faith and praying in the Holy Spirit are actually familiar phrases that are used elsewhere in the Bible, so that we can understand what they mean. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Talking about building yourselves up, it says, According to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it but each one is to be careful how he builds on it for no one can lay any foundation other than is what has been laid down the foundation is Jesus Christ you see in the new testament epistles we get a clear picture of this building metaphor and the most important part of a building is what the foundation The most important part of any building is the foundation. The most important part of your growing up in Christ is the foundation that you laid, is at the bottom of your faith, Jesus. If it's not there, then start, don't pass, go, don't collect $200, go directly back to your Bible. If the foundation of your faith is not Jesus and what he's done, not you and what you've done, not what your granddaddy or grandmama did, not you, the deacons and your aunties and uncles, but what Jesus Christ did and through faith you have received, that is the foundation. Jude's first charge is to then grow up beyond that. Build upon that foundation. Build yourselves up in the faith. Once again, faith isn't talking about this feeling of belief. It's talking about this body of truth that makes up Christian doctrine. Build yourselves up in the faith. Grow up, Christian, is what he's saying. Mature in the gospel. Don't just stay where you are. Grow up in the faith. That may be more intellectual, the reading and the study and the communal responsibilities we have there. But that's the first command. The second one is praying in the Holy Spirit. Once again, I don't think he has speaking or praying in tongues here because Ephesians 6.18 has this exact same phrase. Ephesians chapter 6 is talking about the armor of God. Remember the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of faith? Remember the song? I don't know if y'all know the song. Anybody know the song? No, everybody. Y'all, y'all wasn't raised right. That's all right. Um, if you was raised right, you know the song uh, about, uh, about the armor of God. And in this armor of God passage, we see praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 18 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. It says, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and to stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. And so what I think he's meaning here is not praying in tongues necessarily, but praying by the power that the Holy Spirit gives you. Informed prayers by the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God made alive in your prayers. So the two commands that he starts with, is to grow up in the gospel and to pray by the power of the Spirit. To grow up in the gospel and to pray by the power of the Spirit. Why? Why did he start here? We see that in verse 21, the why behind these first commands. It says, so that we can keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. The reason why we must grow up in the gospel, the reason why we must have a lifestyle and rhythms of prayer fueled by the Spirit so that we can keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, what does that mean? That sounds a little bit like that we have got to now maintain our own salvation. We've got to keep ourselves in the love of God, but that is not what Jude is saying. How do I know that? Because look at the very first verse of this book. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, listen, to those who are what? Called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The very first sermon we preached on through the book of Jude talks about how God's work is what moves on us. All the verbs in verse 1 are passive, which means we are the recipient of God's action. It's God who loves us. It's God who calls us. It's God who keeps us. What Jude is saying in verse 21 isn't that we do the work, it's that we participate in the work of God. There is something for us to do in order to grow up. I've shared this example before, but um, when I come home, I carry my my briefcase, my little bag into into my house, and I walk into my living room. My son Ezra is about five years old. He loves to pretend that he's me, so he'll try to pick up my bag and walk around the house. Now, I don't know about y'all, but my bag is heavy, y'all. My bag got a few books in it. It may look cute, but it's, it's a work bag. And so he's like struggling to pick it up. And so what I oftentimes do is I'll pick it up, and he'll put his hand in the little handle and we'll just walk around. He loves doing it. Who's carrying the weight, though? Me. But there's something beautiful about him and I doing this together, although I'm the one carrying the weight, although I'm the one doing the work. His participation creates a relational intimacy. And so we find in a Christian life, God carries the weight of our salvation. It's God who saves, who God who keeps, it's God who calls, and yet our participation of reading and prayer and study and growing is just a way to relationally connect to the power of God that's already at work on our behalf. And that is what Jude is saying here. He's saying keep yourselves in the love of God, not because it's up to you, but you get to participate with what God is doing. And lastly, Talking about these personal charges is to wait expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. To wait expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. There is lots of conversations and necessary conversations about justice in our world today. But justice is what we owe to each other. We should be very afraid of receiving justice from God. You see, justice is getting what we deserve. I don't know about you, but when I stand in front of God, I'm not going to be screaming justice. I'm going to be screaming mercy. Hold back the wrath that I rightfully deserve. Hold back the punishment that I rightfully deserve and give me that which I don't deserve. we get that through once again the foundation that is Jesus Christ who he is the what he accomplished for us and what our response is to that we get to wait expectantly knowing that we will receive mercy on that last day it's not wondering up until the last moment did i do enough good things did the scales of my life balance out enough no we can expect mercy because of Jesus and that gives us an expectant hope today live for tomorrow. Now, you may be wondering, what does that have to do with contending for the faith? Like, those are beautiful truths, but this idea of praying by the power of the Spirit, the fact of growing up in the gospel, this great hope of receiving mercy through Jesus Christ at that last great day, all those are good things, but how does that help us defend the faith? Think about the words of an old chaplain that I had. He says the world is not waiting for a better definition for Christianity. The world is waiting on a greater demonstration of Christianity. The world is not waiting waiting for a better definition. The world is waiting for a better demonstration. Why is this the first and primary way we defend the faith? It's by living by the hope and grace of Jesus Christ. We will show the world that what we say is true because it's true in my life. The joy that I'm talking about, you see on my face because I expect mercy from Jesus. The vitality that I just share the gospel with isn't something I read in a book, but it's a person that I met this morning in my quiet time. And that's what it means to defend the faith. First and foremost is to live in the vitality that comes from relationship with Jesus Christ yourself. This is not about defending doctrines alone. It's about pointing to the risen and alive Jesus Christ. And if the way we talk about God makes him sound like he's dead, then no wonder the world thinks he's dead. If the way that we live is the way that lives like God isn't alive and working in our lives, then there's no surprise that the world receives it that way. And so the first key for contending and defending the faith is to live that faith out yourself. With vibrancy, with prayer, with growing in the gospel, with expectant hope and joy. That's the personal responsibility. What about the communal responsibility? What do we have? What responsibility do we have for others? Once again, we're not talking about those outside of the church. We're not talking about the person who says that they're an unbeliever. We're talking about the person that says that they're a Christian. What are we to do when we see them struggling? and we're going to see three different categories in verses 22 through 23. It says, have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire, and have mercy on others but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Let's start with the first category. It says, have mercy on those who waver. That idea of wavering is going back and forth. It's an undecidedness. Once again, we're not talking about the unbeliever. We're talking about the brother or sister in Christ that may be struggling to believe some of the doctrines. I know several of my friends who years ago were strong brothers in the faith that I'm walking with now have been swept away by tribal theology, by a cultural, I even mean, pan African theologies. And they are wavering in their faith, they're going back and forth. In the greater church, they talk about being swept up in nationalism an American ethic, gospel ethic, and they're being swept away. We even see those who are famous musicians and artists deconstructing their religion. I believe in God, but I don't believe in God the way I used to believe in God. Now I believe in God differently. And they're wavering in their faith. What is our responsibility to them? They're wrong. We're not not mitigating right and wrong. We're not saying that it's okay. We're not saying that what they're doing is right. But what are we supposed to do? The Bible says that there are some that we should show mercy to. I remember when I was in high school, um, my mother didn't travel often, but it was just me and my mom who lived together. And she was going on a trip that she was actually getting on a plane for. And her plane left at around 2 o'clock, 2.30. And so I knew that she would get in her car around 1:32 o'clock and would drive away. And I, being a good son that I was, the first thing I did was I called all my homeboys and said, "Hey, come over to my house at 2:30. we're having a party." She got, but she's going to be on a plane. Not like she can come back. And so just like clockwork, my mom gets in her car at 1:32 132 o'clock, drives away to the airport, hugs, kisses, boo-hoo, I love you, all the while plotting. 2:30 rolls around, and just like clockwork, all my friends start showing up at the house. Now, we're in high school, so it's not even like a real party. We don't even know what we're doing. I just have a house. I mean, it's 2.30 in the afternoon, y'all. We just, I just have an empty house. I feel like we got to do something with it. So we just started having people over, doing all the things that she told me not to do. Don't have people in my house. Don't have people in my room. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. I'm just breaking all those rules, living it up. And around 3.30, at just the height of shenanigans, in walks in my mom. Boy, you ever just have the whole bottom of your soul drop out? Just like, because <gasps> you dead wrong. Like, there's no way I can lie. There's no way I can say Like, there's nothing that I can do. I am caught. i never forget that moment of locking eyes with my mom, my mom locking eyes with me, just looking at me like, I cannot believe this. To my amazement, though, she walked upstairs, spent a few minutes up there. don't know what she was doing, but I was just sitting there. I mean, no one left. No one moved. Everyone just sat still hoping that it's like the old like peekaboo game. Like Maybe if we stand real still, they, they won't be able to see us. Like All my friends are just frozen in place. I'm just like, don't say nothing. Don't move. And after a few minutes, my mom walks downstairs, walks out the front door. It would be, it would be a week or so later when she came back from her trip that we would talk about that. We only, we only talked about it once. We never talked about it again. And honestly, she only said two words to me. It just happened to be those two words that a, a child never wants to hear from their parents. And it was simply, I'm disappointed. Now, y'all got to understand, some of y'all don't know my mom. My mom is not the I'm disappointed person. My mom is the you gonna catch these hands person, right? She got the ministry laying on her hands. And I just knew, I just knew, like, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm a, I need to make an emergency plan. I need to, like, I'm, I'm making plans to end my life because I know this is the end. But she just looked at me and said, I'm disappointed. And she never talked about it again. But hearing those words from her, not getting what I felt like I deserved, I almost wanted her to punish me. I almost wanted her to do more than what she did because it felt so wrong and it felt even more wrong to get mercy in that moment. What I've come to realize now having children of my own and living a little bit of life is there are some lessons that only mercy can teach, that consequences can. There are some lessons that we can only learn from receiving mercy that even consequences can't teach us. In that moment of receiving mercy, I felt the shame of sin. I felt the pain of betrayal of trust. I felt the weight of what it means to actually have responsibility. And in that moment of mercy... I grew, and I repented. There are some people in our lives that are are straying away from the faith, and our initial response is to send them this blog article, to to go back and forth with them on social media, to sit them down with Bibles open, be like, all right, you go, then I go, then you go, then I go. One of us is going to be wrong. One of us is going to be right. And there's a time and place for that, but sometimes mercy is what's needed. Sometimes, brother, man, what's going on? Sometimes it's prayer and love. Sometimes it's something that we don't even realize that is causing them to pursue a lie. And God wants to do something on our behalf and in their heart, and all we got to do is get out the way. The Word of God says it like this in 2 Timothy. Chapter 2 verse 24 says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, listen carefully, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of truth. Who grants repentance? Who grants a knowledge of the truth? It's not our winsome arguments. It's God who brings people back from the brink of despair. And so our role sometimes is to be patient, kind, and loving, and watch God do something that our arguments could not. That is the first category of our communal responsibility is for those who waver. But he's not done. Verse 23 says, save others by snatching them from the fire. I love that word. Y'all like to snatch. Like I just, I just feel that word. Y'all feel that word? I just feel that word every time I hear it. Snatching them from the fire. And I think that's intentional That word is a a hard action verb because there are some brothers and sisters that we know in their lives they are struggling and we've been praying for them, we've been hoping for them, we've been wishing them the best, but sometimes we got to get in our car, drive drive to their house and knock on their door. There are some people that we've got to snatch out of the flames of judgment themselves. They are headed down a path that's going to destroy them, their faith, and their family, and we've got to jump in the way. I know we don't want to hear that because they got their problems, I got my problems, that's their business, that's not my business. But if they call themselves brother or sister, if they call themselves a Christian, we have a communal responsibility that if they're headed down a path that's going to destroy them to jump in the way. I've had brothers that I've loved and known for years, and they've shared something with me in confidence. And I've had to look them in the eye and say, Brother, either you tell them or I will. You tell your wife, or I will. You tell your boss, or I will. You tell that person, or I will, because you are engaging in a pattern of sin that will destroy you. You are living in darkness, and that darkness will consume you. And being a good friend isn't keeping your secrets. Being a good friend isn't just being a safe place. Being a good friend is snatching you from the very fires of judgment itself. We think being a good friend is keeping the trust of others, and sometimes that's part of it. But sometimes being a good friend is I'm willing to lose my friendship with you in order to save your soul. Because where you are headed is to destruction. I'm not talking about people who disagree with our choices for their life. We're talking about people who are pursuing a way that they're going to discard their faith and destroy those around them. We're talking about a path of destruction. And there's some people's lives that we've got to intervene in. We've been quarantined for 6, seven, eight, 20, 30 years. I don't even know how long anymore. And there's some people that we know are struggling. There's some people that we know we are worried about. Maybe you need to go by their house today. Six, foot, six feet away, mask on, do what you got to do. But, hey, man, I, I've been calling, I've been texting, I've been praying, I haven't heard nothing from you, man. What's up? There are some people that we need to intervene in their lives to save their soul. Because if they keep going this direction, they're going to destroy their faith and possibly destroy themselves. And so this idea of of, of snatching those from the fire is this communal responsibility for those who are in the household of faith. We should love one another so much that we're going to put ourselves in your life, whether you want it or not, sometimes because you're headed down the path of destruction. Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about just minding other people's business. We're not talking about just, oh, I don't like that decision, so let me go tell. We're not talking about that. We're talking about you are headed down the path of destruction. If you continue in this way, there will be nothing left. You know, when you're a parent, you see your kid doing something stupid, sometimes you just tap your wife and be like, hey, look. And you see him fall off the couch, and, you know, it's funny, right? There are some mistakes that are just funny. They may be a little hurt, but they'll learn from that. There are some mistakes that you can watch other people make, and it's okay. That's the mercy component. You see them like, I'm just going to have mercy. I'm going to, I'm going to not give them what I feel like they deserve in this moment. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to forgive, but I'm going to hang back. because a lump on the head, a little skinny, not a big deal. And then you see your child running out into the freeway, And in that moment, there's no time to stand and watch. There's no time to say, no, don't. There's only time for running full speed after them to grab them and tackle them to save their life. And there are some people who are in issues where maybe you're sitting back and you're praying and you're watching and you're waiting for God to do something. But there are some people who are going through some things where we need to get up and just start running towards them in love. To save their souls. Because there's some consequences you can't come back from there's some decisions that you can't get a do-over. There's a video uh, on YouTube, there's probably many of these, but um, one in particular, of of two friends at a a party, not Christians, just two guys at a party. Guys, has been drinking all night. They are ready to leave. Man grabs his keys, heads to his car, and is about to drive home drunk. I mean, even though his buddy has been drinking, his buddy is sober enough to realize, I can't let you do this. And so he tries to get the keys from him. The guy's like, nah, man, I'm okay. You know, all the excuses that people who've been drinking make, oh, I drive better drunk. like, no, you don't. That's not a true thing, y'all. Stop saying that. That's not a true thing. I do this all the time, or I'm not that far from my house. He began to give all the excuses that maybe some of us have even heard, but that brother knew, like, nope. I can't let you risk destroying your life or someone else's. And so they go back and forth, and it gets heated. He's like, nah, man, I'm good. And long story short, these dudes end up rolling around on the ground fighting because this man is so consistent so um, committed to saving his life that I don't care if we're not even friends after this, you are not getting in this car and driving home. That's the level of commitment that the Word of God is calling us to. I am so committed to you following God's purpose for your life. There are some times where I'll hang back, but there's other times if we got to wrestle, we got to wrestle. I'm not letting you throw away what God has given you. I'm not letting you throw away your very future. Some we have to snatch from the fire. And then he gives a third category, which is really a warning. He says, have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. That's really just a warning. That's a warning that says that nobody sins in a unique way. That although you might not be struggling what someone else struggles with, that sin is still present in your heart somewhere. It just hasn't come alive yet. It's saying that I don't think too highly of myself to think that I would never do that. How many people have said that in their life? I'd never do that. Then you do it. (laughs) You get older, right? I'll never do that when I'm a parent. I'll never do that when I'm married. I'll never do that when I'm like, okay. And then you do these things. There's a sense of humility which says that, man, I take sin seriously, And I'm not going to go along with you and participate in sin or be in a place where I might be tempted to sin because I hate even the garment defiled by the flesh, the flesh being sin. I think about a story when I was in college. Um, uh, We used to, before I was a believer, of course, uh, we went to this club kind of in Columbia um, when I was partying. And there was this Christian organization. It's actually a really cool idea, right? This Christian campus organization will be outside of the clubs on Friday and Saturday nights. And they would kind of hand out tracks and praying with people and just kind of have gospel conversations before and after the, the night was over. Um, that's actually really cool. The problem was the more I kept going, the more I started seeing people who were on the outside hand out tracks make their way inside. i was like, hey, bro, didn't I just see you outside? She's like, yeah, man, I'm just trying to you know, I'm just, you know, build connection with this brother. Like, but you inside the club trying to talk about Jesus. I hear your heart, but it just don't seem right. Now, mind you, I'm an unbeliever. Looking at believers trying to share the gospel, and it just didn't feel right. Like, nah, I feel like you're participating in what we're doing, not calling us out of this. It's a a small example of their true story that we should not be caught up in the sins of others as we try to rescue people from their sin. Because sin is serious, sin kills, and our example of how serious it is can show them just how serious it is. Hey man, won't you come over here and talk with me? Like, nah, man, I can't do that, bro. Hey, we're going to go to this thing. Why don't you come hang with me? Like, no, man, I can't do that. Not that I'm better than you. Not that I'm looking down on you. I just don't trust myself. And if I know if I put myself in a position where sin is more possible than not, then I might fall and I might dishonor my God and dishonor my witness. And so the warning is, as we are seeking to snatch others out of the fire, as we are seeking to show mercy to those who are struggling, let us be aware that we are not immune to sin ourselves let me say this as as I close. This may not sound like contending for the faith to you. Maybe you've been taught that contending for the faith is reading these books and having these types of arguments and structuring rhetoric this way, and there's a place for that. But the book of Jews says, no, defending the faith looks like a personal responsibility to live out the faith. And a communal responsibility is when you see those wandering to show mercy and love, and if need be, to intervene in their life to save their soul. That's what it's about. It's about loving one another. That's why Jude says if we defend the faith this way, there will be more mercy, peace, and love, not just smaller friendless, not just block numbers, but mercy, peace, and love, because everything we do is motivated by love for the gospel, love for Jesus, and love for our brother and our sister. And if we, the church today, would defend the faith like that, maybe we would have to defend the faith less. If we would defend the faith like this, maybe we wouldn't have to defend the faith so much because they would see us living and loving the way God calls us to. Let me pray. Father, God, these are extraordinary words, God. To think that the best way to defend the faith, God, is just loving you to growing up in the gospel, praying by the power of the Spirit, and loving our brothers and sisters enough to show mercy and to snatch them from the fire if need be. Father God, would you seal this word in our hearts today? Would you be ever present to remind us of this word? Even this week, God, bring to our remembrance, God, The brothers and sisters who we should reach out to this week. The brothers and sisters who we should love tangibly this week. And God, when we see a brother or sister struggling, as we all struggle at times, would we lean towards mercy first? God, we love you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.